Good morning. Well, most of you are hopefully familiar with uh, Sonia Gunther-Green. She is our young adults intern and has been doing that role since uh, September. We've been delighted to have her here. So hopefully she is a familiar face to many of you. Sonia has been part of our congregation for the last number of years. And um, for those of you that have been around for the month of January, you'll know that we've had the opportunity and privilege to get to hear stories from many folks from our conversation, from our congregation about their journey of faith and the ways that God has been at work in their life. So we are delighted and grateful to have you, Sonia, this morning sharing a little bit of your journey with us. So um, just as we get started, Sonia, can you tell us a little bit about your background and particularly how it relates to faith kind of before university? So I grew up in a Christian family, and we've always gone to church, but growing up, I did not have a lot of Christian friends. I went to a lot of youth retreats, but it felt like others went to the retreats just as a place to hang out with their friends and do fun activities. And even though this was a lot of fun, it didn't give me a lot of people my own age who I shared my faith with. They went to church, but they didn't really talk about God. All through high school, I worked at Circle Square Ranch in Brantford. Working at Circle Square Ranch was a way for me to share my love of horses and share God and his love with the kids. And this was the first time I had a group of friends and an atmosphere of people who talked about their relationship with God and their faith openly. So can you tell us a little bit about the experience of leaving home and coming away to university? What was that like for you? Well, I've known I wanted to go to the University of Guelph for a long time, but I didn't really think about what it meant to leave home. I had a really hard time adjusting to both the change from high school to university and the same time as leaving home. It was like a difficult transition that also involved leaving my support system behind. The concept of trying new things in any capacity from meeting new friends to talking to professors felt really scary to me. I'm now in fifth year, and when talking to new students I come in, who are coming in, I tell them that the biggest things I've learned from university have not been sitting in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. And how did you end up at Courtright? How did you connect with our young adults group here? Uh, For the first little bit of first year, I was not attending any church, and something felt like it was missing. In the difficulty of this transition, I was missing part of my relationship with God. I know you don't need to attend church every Sunday to have faith, but it was something I'd always done that was part of my faith, and Sunday mornings felt pretty empty. I talked to my mom about it, that I was having a hard time with the transition, and she found Courtright for me. Then she contacted the young adults intern at the time and arranged a ride for me from residence. I'd originally planned to go to different churches to find something that fit, but after one Sunday at Courtright, I felt really welcomed and that it had some things I was really looking for. So I came here one Sunday and just never left. (laughs) Through getting a ride from the intern at the time, I was able to hear about the lunches and meet the other young adults that were part of the group at the time. I've continued to get rides to the church from different young adults and people in the congregation, and I found that it's a really helpful way to get to know different people and have conversations that are more than just surface-level one-on-one from different people. I love that, your mom saying, okay, here's the church, I've got a ride for you this Sunday, and you never left, and we're delighted about that. Um, can you share a little bit about some of the things you appreciate about being part of the young adults community here at Courtright? Courtright right away felt like it was a super welcoming community to me, but the thing that was really special to me about it was how thriving the students and young adult group was here. Before university, I did not have any Christian friends in school, and the few people I knew my own age from church did not talk about their faith. At Courtright, I knew that all the students and young adults attending were not just attending because they came there because their families were, or because that's just the thing you do on Sunday morning. They were there because by their own choice, like me, they felt that their relationship with God was important to their lives and that being in a community of faith was part of that. 
And what's it been like for you to be part of that faith community on, on your own and away from your family? In the last few years before I started university, my family went through a process of changing churches. And in that, I really got to thinking and talking to my family about what it was we really got out of going to church, why we went, and what we were looking for. And then in moving to Guelph and starting to attend Courtright, on my own, I had to think about why I attend church and what it is I get from attending and what it is I want to get from attending. When I was working at Circle Square Ranch, this was another thing that my mom pushed me to do. It was something I really enjoyed and really helped me grow in faith, but it was not something I would have done on my own. While there, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to some of the kids one-on-one about what it meant to have a relationship with God. I'd always gone to church, learned the stories, memorized the Bible verses, but in talking to those kids, I found that being a Christian is about more than just those things. While working there, I went through what I called the head-to-heart switch, where my faith went from being about learning about the Bible to really knowing what it meant to have a personal relationship with God. That really changed how I saw faith and how I saw God going forward. In moving to Guelph, I went through another turning point in choosing to search out God without the push of my family and understanding why on my own I wanted to continue to search out God and hold on to his presence in my life. So fast forward a little, and now you are our young adult intern, but I understand that was a long process for you even deciding to apply for that role. Yeah, so I first became aware of the role when I was in first year, when the intern at the time gave me rides to church and introduced me to the young adults group at KPC. I've continued to be involved in the young adults group through three interns who've all brought very different and amazing things to the church and to the students and young adults who attended. When I was in first year, my mom told me that I would be great for the position, and I right away denied it, knowing that new experiences, new people, and talking in front of the people are opposites (laughs) of strengths for me. (laughs) During last year, while Jill was the intern, I found myself more interested in what she was doing and wanting to help and be more involved. And the thought crossed my mind that this was something I might want to do, but I still couldn't bring myself to say it out loud because that would make it too real. Again, I got to thinking how in working at Circle Square Ranch, God had pushed me but helped me to share his word one-on-one with the kids there. Now he was pushing me and walking with me and sharing my faith again on a larger scale. It reminds me of the story in Judges 7 where Gideon is raising an army against the Midianites, and every time he brings an army forward, God says, that's too many soldiers, send some home. And at the end, there's just a tiny little group of soldiers. God wanted to make sure that when they won, they knew they couldn't have done it without him. I knew that organizing things and reaching out to people and welcoming new students to the church were still very scary things to me, but that, like Gideon, God was making a point that it was not something I could do on my own, that that he would be there with me. So when the position became available again this year, and with one last push, when Allison messaged me on Facebook telling me to apply, I did. (laughs) Taking this position after the years of thinking about it was not because it had gotten easier or less scary. It was because of the huge impact of a relationship with God had and continues to have on my life, and that my want to share it with others was stronger than my fear. That's awesome. Want to share it with others stronger than your fear. And I love that part of your story that... It's not that things became less scary. There was just a sense of this is still scary, but God is with me, and he wants me to know that it's him doing this through me and with me. So who is God to you, and why are you excited for others to know him? Well, growing up, God to me was something that set me apart, both in good and bad, and being an outsider, but also good in being able to share God's love with others. God to me now is someone that gives me a community, gives me support in his people and in this church. My relationship with him has given me the perfect friend, the support, and sometimes that extra push that I need. 
and I'm excited to share with others because I don't know where I'd be in my life without his steadfast love and in this incredible relationship. And I want to be able to share it with others so they can feel what that's like too. Sonia, we are so glad that you stuck around. (laughs) And would you join me as I just pray briefly for Sonia? God, we thank you for Sonia. We thank you for the amazing evidence of your work and your hand in her life. We thank you for the ways that she has chosen to step out uh, in faith, even with fear. And I thank you for the ways that you continue to provide and come through and show her your strength with her. Pray that you would bless her. And when you bless her ministry with our young adults, pray that you continue to give her wisdom and joy as she carries out that role. And we thank you for her and praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Allison and Sonia. Um, It's been so great to hear stories, all the stories we've heard over the last month of how God is working in people's lives. Um, I have uh, a prayer request of my own this morning. I'm feeling really crummy today, so I need you to pray with me as I'm preaching because I've been sick this week and um, Karina's really worrying I'm going to cough on the communion bread too. so, so. So maybe just don't touch it. I, okay, that's going to be hard to, hard to do. Um, this is our fourth week in the book of Jonah, and we've come some distance, haven't we? First of all, we met Jonah as he was being called by God to the great city of Nineveh, and we watched him drop everything and run in the opposite direction. We followed him into a great storm and some surprising moments with a group of sailors, not good Jewish boys, but unworthy outsiders as he would have seen them who yet proved to be the best kind of friends. They fought for Jonah, and they only threw him overboard at his own insistence that it was the thing that God wanted them to do, and when there was no alternative. Those sailors came to faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, even though Jonah did nothing to persuade them of that. But Jonah had even farther to sink, and he was swallowed up by a great fish. And in that place of darkness, in that place of feeling abandoned by God, suffering in the stink, and the mess of his failures, he recognized how helpless he was. And he cries out to the Lord, and incredibly, he gives thanks to God. And he finishes with this shout, salvation comes only from the Lord, he declares. And then the fish vomited him up onto the dry land. Allison was right, it's more fun to say vomit than to say Tarshish. (laughs) Today we find Jonah is called again. It's a second chance for him, and we're going to see what he does with it. But before we open our Bibles, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to awaken our souls today. We praise you for your word, the source of life itself, and for the resurrection hope that we have in you. Holy Spirit, fill us up with your grace and your truth, we pray. Amen. So we're reading Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. 
A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Some years are more memorable than other years. In 1987, I graduated from high school and left my family home for good. After a few more graduations, in 1996, I got my first real full-time job. In 1999, I married Judith. In 2001, we had our first child, and then we had two more. In 2010, we were called to Courtright, and we left Toronto, moved to Guelph. In 2018, John Tavares became a Toronto Maple Leaf. (laughs) And that's my life. (laughs) You understand I'm at an age when one looks back. When you're in your 40s, you do that. Let me say you can look forward to me sharing my 40-something perspective on life a fair bit over the next six months while I still have it. (laughs) But when I think about memorable years... Nothing can beat 1989 for historical significance. I was a second-year student at the University of Toronto at the time, and the world was changing in the most dramatic and thrilling ways. Communism was collapsing in Eastern Europe, and we'd grown up with the Cold War. Some of you remember that. The Tiananmen Square democracy movement happened in China. Anyone remember this guy? An image that it's hard to forget. Apartheid in South Africa was coming to an end. I remember some incredible speeches that year. Václav Havel, president of a post-communist Czechoslovakia, speaking at Convocation Hall at U of T. Wur Kai-shi, a student leader of the uprising in China, speaking again at U of T. And Nelson Mandela, newly released from prison in South Africa. I'll never forget his speech at Queen's Park. The crowd stretched all the way down University Avenue as far as you could see. Mandela said, dictators are turning from their evil ways around the world. Justice is coming. And we cheered. The world seemed full of hope like never before. This past summer, I read a biography of Mikhail Gorbachev, former president of the Soviet Union. I still find it incredible that he led the Soviet Union into giving up its power, into letting its empire unravel. You don't see that kind of thing very often. In Jonah chapter 3, we also witness something you don't see very often. A total turnaround on the part of a great city, a whole nation, an evil empire, and this according to God, not according to Ronald Reagan. The Ninevites believed God, and led by their king, they turned from their evil ways and their violence. God extends mercy to Nineveh as he had to the prophet Jonah. The second half of the book of Jonah makes that mercy clear. And it starts with what we read today. 
It starts with these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. A second time. It starts again, and it always starts when it starts with God's word. Nothing has changed since the beginning. The word of the Lord is what Jonah needs, and it's what Nineveh needs. We're grateful for second chances, aren't we? Some of you have been in serious difficulty, and you've wondered, can I come back? The answer is always yes. The word of God comes to you again, a second time. Here's the thing about second chances, though. God will take you right back to the place where you said no. Sometimes you just want to ignore that. An irreconcilable difference you can move on from. But there are no irreconcilable differences with God. You were wrong, and he was right. And God's not going to take you anywhere until you go back to that place where you said no to him, and you say yes to him this time. And so Jonah obeys the second time. And while he's on his way to Nineveh, he works hard. He has all his commentaries out. He's reflecting, preparing for his sermon. What does he come up with? An eight-word message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Now, no preacher I know of could get away with that. Nor would they want to if they actually cared about communicating God's truth to people. That's the thing. Jonah didn't really care. He only went a day, a day's journey into the city, even though it would have taken him longer to get to its center. The king only hears the message secondhand. Jonah does the bare minimum to get God's word to the people of Nineveh. And yet God moves the Ninevites to repent. The king himself decrees it with fasting and sackcloth. So what does all this mean? Well, three things, I think. Politics, evangelism, and sovereign grace. First of all, politics. Tim Keller points out that you can read this chapter two ways. What happens in Nineveh is either a great spiritual revival or it's a prophetic stand for social justice. Christians who are famous for wanting spiritual revival can also be reluctant to talk about politics and justice. On the other hand, those who talk most about social justice have a tendency to overlook God's judgment on sin. And so Keller writes that we seldom see an equal commitment to preaching the word fearlessly and to justice, and to caring for the poor. Yet these two things are theologically inseparable. I recently saw the film First Reformed. I like to think of it as First Presbyterian myself. Anyone seen this this movie? Anyone? Wow, not too many people have seen it. I don't think it did that well at the box office, I have to tell you. Anyway, it stars Ethan Hawke, and was written and directed by Paul Schrader, of Raging Bull fame, Taxi Driver fame. Those are films you may have heard of. It's been nominated for this year's Oscar for Best Screenplay. Paul Schrader's an interesting guy, went to Calvin College, grew up in the Reformed tradition. I love Ethan Hawke. Any guy who stars in movies with titles like Predestination and First Reformed is my kind of actor. And this film is brilliant and yet infuriating. 
It depicts a troubled pastor, Ernst Toller, played by Hawk, who ministers at a historic congregation that now attracts mostly tourists. The scenes of Sunday morning worship are hilarious. There's three people in the sanctuary. But the church also has a relationship with a local megachurch called Abundant Life, which obviously helps to fund it. And Reverend Toller becomes distraught over circumstances I won't get into. He becomes distraught at the unwillingness of the church to get political and to confront climate change in particular, and also at the church's eagerness for money and power. And the film explores that tension. Back to Jonah. Let's be clear that Jonah's mission to Nineveh is political. And as Christians, we're called to political engagement. Take the year 1989 again as an example. You can think of the activism of the Roman Catholic Church in Poland or the little-known story of the Hungarian Reformed Church's role in the overthrow of dictatorship in Romania. The Church has been central to overthrowing evil throughout centuries. Now, there are other stories you can tell, but we're focusing on that one. If the Church hopes to obey God's word, it can never settle into rigid politics, though. It can never choose to side with one political party. The gospel, if it's the gospel, is always going to challenge both liberal and conservative categories. It will always be offensive to the status quo in one way or another. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we see happening to Jonah as well. His narrow viewpoint is challenged throughout his journey here. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So what happens in Nineveh may not simply be a model for urban revival, but it definitely leads us to talk about evangelism. Is that what Jonah is doing here? Well, yes, of course, he's not doing it well, but evangelism is definitely what he's up to. Evangelism is God using you to bring other people closer to himself. And we're all called to this without exception not just the prophets and the pastors of the world. The word of the Lord has come to all of us, and we're sent out to share it. You heard that in Sonia's testimony this morning already. Now, I know some of you who don't come to church normally are thinking right now, see, this is why I don't like to come to church, because you people are always talking about how to convert the rest of us. Well, let me put you at ease, because this makes most Christians really uncomfortable too. Here's another definition of evangelism. Two very nervous people talking to each other. Most of us are paralyzed when it comes to evangelism. You're like, I don't know where to start. I'm going to go wrong with this. I wouldn't know what to say. You're terrified that you will create some moment of incredible social awkwardness. But God promises that he will use you to draw people to himself if you simply believe two things we see going on here in the story of Jonah. First of all, believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah preached an eight-word sermon. His heart wasn't in it. It wasn't a good sermon. He didn't even tell them to repent. What would that have cost him? A ninth word, repent. No. (laughs) And yet the people respond massively. Why? Some historians talk about unusual astronomical activity at the time and natural disasters that were going on. The empire was disintegrating 
for various reasons. But in the end, the only explanation that really accounts for what takes place here is that God did it. The Bible teaches that God is the one who creates hunger in people's hearts, spiritual hunger. He's the one who arranges circumstances so that they want to know about God. He's the one who supplies faith. We don't. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Not by our powers of persuasion, but only by the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, relax. The pressure's off. It's not on you. Salvation belongs to who? Say it. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to him alone. The second thing you need to believe about evangelism is that, as Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, faith comes only by hearing. God's instrument of life is his word. The word of God is not just information. It's not just commandments. The word of God has a power in it. It is a power. The word cannot do its work if people haven't heard it. Which means our objective as Christians is to get the word of God into people's lives. To get it in front of them, because then God can do his work. Here's a simple idea for you. When you have a friend who is going through a hard time, give them scripture to read. Take those passages that have been most encouraging to you and pass them on in whatever form. Since January, we've been talking a lot about daily Bible reading as a New Year's habit worth getting into. We provided some really great material from Scripture Union to guide you in that. Yes, that's between you and God, but it's so much more. When you read God's Word in the morning, you're like a sponge that's soaking up the water of life, and you're heading out into a parched world that needs to hear those words. If you're saturated in God's Word, It will come through you. It will drip off you. I love those daily devotional books, not only because they're so handy, they're so practical, day in and day out, but also because my life changed when my grandmother kept buying them for me. I mean, for years. It was so annoying. She just kept buying them. Every three months, she'd shove them into my hands. I'd throw them out. She'd shove them back. I'd throw them out. And then, one day, finally, I picked it up and read it at the right time, and the Holy Spirit blazed. Blazed into my life. So give these things away. Books, too. You've read a book that had an impact on you? Buy ten copies. Give it away to your friends. And invite them to church. You might be amazed at how curious some of your friends are about the whole church thing. You'll never know if you don't talk about it. So what did you do this weekend? Oh, not much, but church on Sunday was great. Where could that leave if you waited for someone to say, so church, it was great, what is that? I love the way Sonia put it. Just, you need a little courage to take a little leap of faith. Be bold and see what God does with it. And then you need to pray like crazy. If salvation belongs to the Lord, asking him to do what only he can do should be our greatest resource. Now, Jonah is not a good example of this. Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevite salvation. In fact, he was praying against it. 
Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevites, but Jesus was. You can think of the prayer of Jesus at the cross. Father, forgive them. Forgive the Ninevites for what they've done. And God did. Jesus was continually praying for those who were lost. When you pray, you are simply joining your prayers to his. And by the way, all those prayers that Jesus prayed on the cross were for you too. And that should inspire your prayers for Nineveh. So how many people are you praying for right now to be brought into the kingdom? Here's another question. If God answered every prayer you prayed this past week, all of a sudden, would anyone you know have come to Christ for the first time? We've got to pray for this, Court, right? And we have to be persistent in doing so. My grandma prayed for me seven years after I rejected God. For some of you, it has been longer than that. Maybe you've been praying for seven times seven years. Don't give up. And if you're feeling frustrated with the lack of fruitfulness, know that there is no effective evangelism without waiting on the Lord. This isn't going to happen on your schedule. It's his timing. And let me encourage you to talk about this in your small group also. But if you don't have a small group, or if you just want more time to pray along these lines, and you're looking for people to do this with, we have a group that's meeting every Tuesday night this month, I think, still. Every Tuesday night here at the church. And I know they would love to have you join them. And Joan and Frank Polarai are sitting right there. Wave your hands, Polarize. If you're interested in being part of that prayer group, talk to them after the service. In the end, we only have God's sovereign grace to depend on. Who does salvation belong to? To the Lord and only to him. The story of John Newton comes to mind. He's got plenty of parallels to Jonah too. Back in the 1700s, Newton ran away from God, rejected his Christian upbringing, and he took up slave trading. He participated in one of the grossest social injustices of the last 500 years. Newton ran from God, but he turned back to him in the middle of a terrible storm at sea. And he became an Anglican priest in London, and so he too preached God's word to a great city. John Newton actively pursued social justice and went on to play a key role in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. But most of all, he never lost sight of God's amazing grace revealed in Jesus Christ. And he wrote the song, we love to sing about it, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was found, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will leave us home. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you for your amazing grace in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you revealed to us through him who you are. 
We praise you that salvation belongs to you and to you alone. That you are the source of all life and of life eternal. That you forgive us our sins. That you have conquered death itself. Lord, we praise you for your sovereignty in the world. We look and we see around the world evidence of the sin of mankind. We see social injustice. We see oppression. And yet we see everywhere your goodness, your mercy, your blessing. We thank you for where we are in Guelph for good government, for law and order, for peace and prosperity. Lord, you call us to be involved. You call us to both evangelism and to pursue justice. Would you show us individually how we can be a part of your mission to the world? Would you show us that also as a church? Lord, we pray in particular for the challenge of evangelism. Not many are open to hearing the gospel in our culture. And yet, Lord, you send us out in boldness. You send us out in the power of prayer, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you give us the courage to share your words of eternal life with those who have yet to hear them? Give us an ease about that. Give us a sense of humor. Enable us to be good friends to the people in our lives, to stick with them. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who are suffering right now. We pray for those dealing with ill health. We pray that you would heal them. We pray for your comfort. We pray for those dealing with broken relationships, whether it's in their family, with a co-worker, with a friend, between a parent and a child. Lord, we ask for your reconciliation. You are the one who opens the way to peace. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek peace, as much as it depends on us. Lord, we pray for our congregation. We think of the session meeting coming up this week. We think of the AGM, the annual general meeting at the end of February. We thank you for all the ways that you've been working within our community and through us in the city of Guelph. We pray that you continue to guide us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.